This is a comics podcast. This is your host, Elon Eleven, a.k.a. Elana Brooklyn. This is the show for people who know trans rights are human rights and also have an interest in comics about transhumanism, which Wikipedia defines as, quote, the belief or theory that the human race can evolve beyond its current physical state and mental limitations, especially by means of science and technology. And this is one of the themes of the webcomic, O Human Star, which is centered on the story of a trans robot, the humans who made her, and the complex world of robotics and human development they all live in. The creator of this series, Blue Deliquanti, is my guest today. Blue is the creator of the PRISM Award-winning webcomic, O Human Star. Blue is also the co-creator of the graphic novel, Meal, with Soleil Hu, uh, oh, sorry. Uh, and The Stan with David Axe and Kevin Noddle. Thank you for joining me. Hi there. It's good to be here. Excellent. Excellent. Um, I met you first at uh, FlameCon, which made sense because I first was introduced to your work at FlameCon, everybody's favorite queer geek convention. Um, one of my friends who's actually been on the show to talk about her own work, uh, Ray Epstein, um, was like, oh, this webcomic is amazing, Ilana, you have to buy this trade paperback. And so I did, and she was right. And I've enjoyed it so much, and I've been wanting to get this together for a long time, so I'm happy to be able to do it. Oh, thank you so much for reading my work. And I really appreciate, you know, you having me on, and it was fun talking to you at FlameCon, that that show rules. It really does. Like, there's just no other conglomeration of queer geek people like FlameCon, so... It's really amazing what the how the vibe is different from a show that is granted like features a lot of queer creators and queer friendly work, but isn't directly you know based around featuring it uh, mm-hmm. and comparing that to FlameCon. It's just completely different in a way that I didn't realize I was looking for. I really felt like for me, and I mean I'm speaking obviously as like a you know a white person, but like it was the most. Uh most inclusive queer space I've really been in. And that Mm -hmm. was pretty amazing. Yeah. And it seems like the people who are attending the show and, you know, see it that way for that same reason, they're looking to see that it continues to grow as an inclusive space and like, you know, you know, can take into consideration a lot of ways in which it could be proof for other marginalized queer people as well. So Mm -hmm. I think in that respect, I'm looking forward to seeing FlameCon hopefully grow in that direction in future years. Oh yeah, are you are you going to be coming this year? Um, yeah, I just submitted my my application. It was actually it was interesting because a lot of folks were talking about the um, table uh, policy that they had been uh, working out the last few years, and it looks like they had updated it in a way that I thought was was a good idea. So I submitted my my application once I saw the updates to the policy. So fingers crossed, I, I get in again next year. Yay. And, and this is really an exciting point in time for your own, uh, for your own series. It, um, you're beginning the, I think you said penultimate chapter, mm-hmm. right? Or halfway through the penultimate chapter of? Yeah. Yeah. That's I'm, I'm entering the second half of the second to last chapter. So a lot of stuff will start happening very quickly in the next few months. Well, tell me, how, how did you get started writing, oh, hum- well, writing and drawing? And just, this is your child, uh, Oh Human Star. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's so funny. I do think of like my comics as children sometimes, but I was like, oh, it is my child. My child is eight years old. Um, <laughs> I started working on it. Well, I started developing it in 2011. And I, I tell this story frequently, but it's, it's such an interesting one. At least I think so. Um, I got the basic premise for the comic from a dream I had at the time I was in college and I was in the habit of keeping dream journals because I have had and still have uh, pretty vivid dreams. And um, I just woke up to one that was essentially the elevator pitch of what would become O Human Start, which is that this inventor or this technological innovator wakes up to discover that he is in a robot body that matches his old one exactly and that he has been dead for several years and he decides to go out and find his former uh, partner and collaborator and discovers along the way that that partner has created a robot that started as a copy of the hero uh, Alistair Sterling Um, but has transitioned into a girl persona and uh, identity um, 
for several years. So he's coming to term. He's like coming to terms with both the long amount of time that he's been away, you know, because he's been dead, but also coming face to face with this, essentially this teenage girl um, version of himself in one way or another. Yeah. It's such a cool concept. I mean, what I love is that it has this real focused and accessible way of talking about the human body and robotics, but it's Mm -hmm. completely rooted in these very personal stories about both teens and adults. And um, it's like you're talking about defining bodies and identities of human versus robot and trans and cis and straight and queer and um you know growing up and like being a child versus being an adult and it's just really like looking at how none of these categories are necessarily quite as stable as they're often ascribed to be yeah the other thing that i think is interesting too that goes along with you know going from being a child to a younger adult to an older more experienced adult is that a lot of your experiences that you receive and a lot of your perspective also depends on when you do the growing up one of the things that you know i started considering when i was working on oh human stars that the three protagonists are all they all grew up at different times and they're all having these things happen to them you know they're all queer and they all have these things happening to them at profoundly different times in like American culture, granted it's a kind of a off off the beaten path like alternative history version, but there's still some some analogs to what we would know. And someone, you know, a character that is born in the sixties versus a character that's born in the eighties to a character that is born in the mid two thousands, even if they're all queer, they all have you know remarkably different uh, experiences growing up and perceiving what it is like to be queer and coming to terms with that in yourself. And I feel like that is something that is uh, very noticeable, even in, you know, our own queer communities and, you know, just taking out the fact that we're also talking about transhumanism and the idea of robots and technology and how our perceptions of technology and its benefits and drawbacks are also extremely dependent on when we were doing our growing up and getting affiliated with technology, you know, that's something that's, uh, I thought was very interesting to cover as well. That's an amazing parallel. Wow. Totally. I mean, whenever I have like quote intergenerational dialogue, intergenerational dialogue quote stuff with like queer kids of younger generations, I'm always very like just really wondering like where am I, what am I, how my experience would have been different and where my head would have been at in those circumstances. And it's kind of amazing. Mm-hmm. It's amazing, and then there's something bittersweet about it too, oh, because yeah, yeah, because I feel like in a lot of ways there have been like vast improvements, but at the same time there are a lot of things that you know are just extremely different, and they'll just never be able to, you know, have that exact same experience. So there's not something where you know you can guide a younger person or be advised by an older person to be like, well, this is probably how this will go, because you can't even necessarily guarantee that that's the case. You know, it's it, one of my just a little bit of a sidetrack, but uh, on Tumblr, I remember there was this whole thread that kept going on for years where young queer people were discussing like, what if there was a place where queer people could go and just like read books and drink coffee and there was no alcohol Mm. and after a while people of my generation and older were like so that's a gay coffee shop and bookstore and they used to exist before rents got too high Mm -hmm. and like it was just this like this like tragic moment of like i love that you guys are so creative and understanding of what people's needs are that you came up with this idea but how sad is it that there's like no relationship that you have with older queer people to tell you like this is a thing that existed Well, yeah. And I mean, that even, you know, that also like ties into the fact that, you know, there's an entire swath of the queer community of a certain age that's just not there because, you know, there was like a a plague and a lot of them are just not there. And that leads to a lot of breakdown in terms of like, 
getting those perspectives or even just being able to have someone there who's like, you know, probably in their golden years at this point, you know, there's only so many people that you can like talk to about those experiences. Um, there's a, there's another cartoonist, Jeremy Cerise. And I remember he was talking about how something that he decided to invest more time in was to volunteer at a, like a queer, um, like uh, elder, like community center for exactly that reason. And he said he found that very fulfilling because you don't, wouldn't normally get a lot of that perspective the way you would, would say, you know, a non-queer, like older audience or, you know, your grandparents or anything like that. Yeah. Yeah. You know, in, in terms of the comics, like setting, had you always sort of thought about it in terms of, I mean, it's very much rooted in Minneapolis, I think, which is where you are. <laughs> yes, and yes, it the, is. And in, in, in your 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 freezing and slightly accursed weather, but that's okay. But um, <laughs> I, I I've I've been really intrigued by um, sort of uh, the way it handles time and the passage of time through the series. You you have this limited color palette you're working with. It alternates between this sort of like rust color and this blue color. There's flashbacks to um, when Alistair and Brendan mm-hmm. um, first meet and begin working together, which is around what year again? I'm sorry. Um, it begins in 2001. And yes. Okay. The, and the like future primary storyline is in the year 2021, which seems much it. farther away in 2011 than work- it does yeah. now. <laughs> God. Whew. Um, yeah, so... Um, you know, and you have these different color schemes going on between the sections, and there haven't really been flashbacks outside of dreams into like Alistair's childhood. But I wouldn't be surprised if that's something that we see more of as the story folds together. Uh, you know, like when you've been when you've been constructing the series that really takes place across time, how do you handle that as an artist in the visuals? I mean, I feel like the primary tool that I use for myself and the one that I established early is the when I understood that I would essentially be going back and forth between two timelines, like two perspectives for the most part, um, I decided that I would have the color schemes distinguish them. And by having them being, you know, uh, complementary blue and um, some people call it pink, some people call it orange. I lean towards pink personally because I think that's the majority of the colors I use, but, you know, red. Like, it's with that one. Um, I found that it not only is immediately effective at helping the audience realize that they're someplace else, some, some time else, but I feel like it also affects the mood of the comic and, or of the setting in the way that, you know, might not necessarily be apparent if I had chosen different colors. Um, I always wanted to do uh, the blue um, for the future setting because when I had had that initial elevator pitch dream, it was very, like, I, I distinctly remember cool colors. It was very cool and, like, white and pale blues and, like, cold colors. And so when I wanted to complement that, I, I ended up going uh, the other another direction. Um, but, yeah, I don't know. I feel like there's a warmth and a sort of nostalgia and a vividness that comes with the the pink color scheme that ended up informing and bolstering what I was going for in those flashback sections. How did you develop your particular artistic style? One of the things I love is, you know, I've seen some of your work in things like Adventure Zine, for example, and I can always tell. I can always (laughs) tell when it's you. Um, I mean, how did you sort of develop your particular drawing approach? Were there particular artists you were looking at? You know, obviously working in the webcomic format as part of how you developed this approach as well. But, you know, working with a limited powers, color palette, and the particular kinds of faces and shapes that you draw. That's, you know, that's a good question because I'm trying to think of who my earliest um, influences are. When I think about um, artists that, really affected who I drew early on. I know Bruce Tim was up there. I was really influenced by Bruce Tim's work on um, like the Batman animated series and a few other things, just like really crisp, clear lines, like a lot of uh, detail sacrificed for really dynamic 
simple shapes. Um, later on, when I studied other uh, comic and and animation uh, concept artists, I got really into uh, Alex Toth, I think is how you say his last name. He did a lot of work for, yeah, um, yeah like Johnny Quest in the Hanna-Barbera era of superhero um, comics. Who, who else was really influential? I had a lot of, I was in the like primo era for um, the manga boom of the late 90s, early 2000s. And I remember being very inspired by Hiromu Arakawa, the creator of Full Metal Alchemist who also has a very like distinct face drawing style and she loves uh, contra- using contrast and just like really thick dynamic line work and, you know, distinct like characters who all look very distinct and all have a very like evident visual personality. Um, Mike Mignola is up there too. Like mm. it's kind of all mm-hmm. over the place, but I was always really drawn to crisp, um, uh, solid line work that will, you know, say a lot with a little. I, I was always very impressed by that. You know, your, your visual tone is so different than Mike Mignola's, but as soon as you said that, I especially on the machines, mm-hmm. I totally see that. I totally see that in the machines. It's for a very different filter, but wow, that is so interesting. I was really impressed by, by what Mignola could do because there are some pages of Hellboy, for example, that could easily be 75% spot black. But he had enough of an understanding of what was going on underneath there or what to reveal, like what was cast in in light while the rest was cast in shadow that the reader's brain could fill in the rest. And, Mm -hmm. you know, I feel like an understanding of the form beneath whatever shadow or or anything that you lay on top really goes a long way in helping uh, the audience fill in the blanks. And I was also really uh, influenced by artists that have a good sense of of timing. Like pacing mm. is really, really important to me in how I look, tell out my stories. I think in that respect, Mignola is really good at that, as is um, Naoki Urasawa. Uh, he is the artist, um, or he's the creator of the graphic novel Monster, 20th Century Boys. But I was super duper influenced by Pluto, which is... Um, Pluto is a retelling of an Osamu Tezuka Astro Boy story. Hmm. And the original story is about this uh, powerful robot that decides to destroy all the other extremely powerful robots in the world so that he is the most powerful robot. And Astro Boy is, you know, it's an all ages general audience, you know, sci-fi superhero story. But Naoki Urasawa changes it to be a, like, murder mystery, like, a mature Mm. you know like muted and like melancholy murder mystery uh that with a global scope and astro boy goes from being this like little kid you know superhero robot to being like generally like a young child with like a you know a perspective on the world that is like experienced but kind and and still like gentle in a way that was extremely impressive to me i don't know i I really liked the way that he updated this story and talked about robots and their dealings with humanity in a way that was very nuanced and deliberate and suspenseful i liked that very much well i definitely noticed these really wonderful quotes from literature that you use in um sort of as chapter ending title pages or reverse title pages maybe um yeah like it seems like you really have a lot of different interesting and very on topic uh references and thinking from other science fiction about robotics here Mm -hmm. is it something that you've been interested in for a long time as a topic yes yeah i was always really interested in how like different cultures different times thought about the idea of artificial humanity it was really interesting to see when people were more uneasy about it and others were more accepting of the ideas that 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 those you know possibilities implicated um the title oh human star comes from the original translation of this play by a czech playwright named um carol chapek uh called rossum's universal robotics r-u-r uh, it comes from like the WPA mm-hmm. era of, you know, bringing theater to general audiences in the United States. And it's, you know, it's not the most like 
like you know there's better there's better robot stories out there now but it was very influential in its way and it talked about that idea of robots or androids really the, the robots he describes are very um they're they're kind of like these the cylons from battlestar galactica like indistinguishable from humans but they have a very different perspective because they were built to be laborers mm-hmm. uh, and they just you know have that it's the it's the beginning of the end is what that play depicts like that break from humanity that the robots experience and understanding that their you know life experience is profoundly different and can never be reconciled it's Um, definitely recognized as like an important socialist work that i think people have talked about from that perspective a lot yeah well the word robot comes from the czech word for i think like a serf or a laborer like that is ingrained in the word and i always thought that was very interesting too well i mean one of the great things that your comic really talks about is this question of like robots almost as different classes of people because you have some robots are more humanoid than others and you know who decides which kind of robots are treated in what way Mm -hmm. yeah i didn't want to try and have it be too much of an overlay for real you know human class circumstances but i do notice that when it comes to engaging with robots in real life it's extremely dependent on what the person that that robot is interacting with at any given time or that relationship that the person wants to create with a robot it's very conditional and you know especially in the 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 bellwether that i always think about um because it's you know it happens every once every year every two years is whenever boston dynamics releases a video of their newest prototype and these are the folks who have they started by creating big dog which is this pack robot that i believe was designed with like the Department of Defense in mind, but it's a, it looks like a mule with like no head. It's just got a torso and four legs and it carries a whole lot of weight and it's uh, able to climb slopes and go across ice. And the, the thing that I always remembered is it'll be walking in the video, the demo video, and someone will kick it like in the torso and it'll kind of go, whoa, 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 whoa. And then it'll balance out and keep going on its way. And people either loved this thing or hated this thing. And that goes for all of the other prototypes, too. They have a bipedal one now that can lift boxes and loads. And they also, in their demonstration, had a, uh, a technician with a hockey stick, an extremely high, high-tech high item, smack the box out of the robot's hand and knock it over so it can pick itself back up. And, mm-hmm. you know, people were like taking this video and laying over the music from the terminator over it like oh this is the beginning of the end this is what the robots you know this is how they get us and i and i always think of it as like you know um you ever watch those uh sheepdog and coyote cartoons from looney tunes where you know they clock in like it's a job and then they antagonize each other and then it's a lunch break and they go back to being friends (laughs) yeah like that's something that I, I always see that like you know it's all a construct and it mostly just depends on you know people can be fond of their robots or foresee bigger things for it or they can be scared of it or you know limit to it to its specific tasks i think there will be a culture change one way or another where one perspective becomes more universal than the other well your story covers some moments in which sort of you know synthoid people get a different range of of rights recognized legally. Yeah. Or just the idea of that conversation happening where, you know, it wasn't even like a question of, you know, should they have them to the question being brought up and then they get them. Like, Mm -hmm. I think in that way, you know, without it being too much of a, you know, one-to-one parallel, I think the recognition of these people or like these you know individuals having a distinct perspective that is worthy of recognition and dignity that recognition has to happen before the rights or like you know that's usually how it goes for lots of marginalized identities i feel yeah at least that seems to be how it happened with queer identities is people you know will have to say hey i'm i'm i think i have this experience does anyone else have this experience oh this is a thing that is you know across a group and there's a community of us well we should probably you know 
be recognized formally in law or something like that. Yeah, absolutely. I also really appreciate like the way the story, uh, oh my gosh, I'm forgetting her name. The other, the main, um, artificial limb developer. Oh, Lucille. (laughs) Yes, Lucille. So you have a character who builds artificial limbs and who, uh, like prosthetic limbs and really advanced and she she uses them herself and there's so many great questions that she brings up about like when and how do you want limbs to resemble the same as standard you know ones that people are are born with or Mm -hmm. developing different alternatives that are more creative more expressive less trying to pass and that's just another really big consistent theme throughout the story i really i really enjoy lucy as a character and i'm glad she gets the screen time she does so to speak um yeah i was really like lucille didn't have as much of a role in the uh first outline but as i started developing the story i realized how valuable her perspective was for various reasons and also i realized you know as as time passed that this is a conversation that's happening now for people who use uh prostheses um i get this has become a running joke, but like literally on Twitter several times in the last few months, I've gotten linked to this um, website called uh, the Alternative Limb Project, I think it's called. Mm-hmm. And it is these folks, you know, people who use prosthetic limbs, design them, you know, create prototypes, model them. Folks are coming up with extremely innovative or interesting and divergent from human anatomy limbs for you know, both for um, practical and aesthetic purposes. There are Mm -hmm. uh, people who have limbs that are like tentacles and there's a famous uh, singer or a musical performer in Europe who has a prosthetic leg that's just a a black spike, like a black pyramidal spike that is extremely gorgeous. And Mm. it's something that I think people who have, you know, more options when it comes to the kind of prostheses they have access to. Um, they have more say in how that reflects not only what they do and what they are capable of physically, but also how that reflects their identity out on the world. And yeah, it's interesting to see this conversation as I've witnessed it, you know, mm-hmm. with among these folks in terms of taking something that is, I guess, traditionally considered a, a disability or a misfortune, you know, something where you have to either like make it seem as unnoticeable as possible or try and normalize your experience the best you can to drawing attention to it or augmenting your experience in a way that would be impossible with human limbs. I mean, think of those, those, uh, feet that uh paralympics uh paralympic runners wear the the scythes like something that would give you an edge that that you know you'd be incapable with with you know human feet um that Mm -hmm. that that conversation about augmentation and destigmatizing your alternative experience is very very interesting to me my my friend who has a prosthetic leg has the, the same design as the Winter Soldier's uh, robotic <laughs> arm printed on his, mm-hmm. although it, it doesn't have the other complex elements of it. Because, <laughs> but although that also is the thing is, you know, so much of the advancement in prosthetic limbs that we have is a product of the fact that all of these soldiers had their limbs blown off in Iraq and Afghanistan. Mm-hmm. And um, your, your your story also looks a lot at how government tries to particularly the military tries to get access to particular technological tools and how military funding is the only way that some really important work gets funded. And so how do you control it so that, for example, your giant robot gets to be used for construction in the city versus killing people in faraway countries? Yeah. And that's a really like nuanced in-depth conversation that we, you know, should be having more. And I feel like, you know, I could only touch on it in the story so much because at the end of the day, it's a personal story about a family. Mm -hmm. But yeah, at the end of the day, these, these robots that Boston Dynamics put out, you know, their primary customer that they're trying to court is DARPA. You know, there's only so many venues for a lot of these expensive, innovative uh, robotics projects. And I mean, you know, there are precedents for things that end up having a lot of like, you know, public use, like the internet, you know, also starting in that same place. 
But, you know, at some point that is something that we want to ask, especially with, you know, things that could lead to a sapient species or, you know, something where we would have to regard them as unique individual beings, like trying to figure out that fine line between designing them as a product for, you know, the Department of Defense versus, you know, making it uh, a public good, like something that, you know, people can can build upon and, and let do as they please. That's, mm-hmm. it's a very sticky situation. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I also appreciated, you had a, the way your comic was originally posted is as a, as a web comic. And so you often will have writer's notes, just brief ones underneath the individual panels. And then there's all the different reader comments and stuff. I remember the panel that had um, the meeting where the main characters go to a military officials like gathering to sort of talk with them about their work. You had a comment underneath it saying, you'll never see this many men in a panel ever again. <laughs> oh, you mean in Oh Human Star? Yeah. yeah, yeah. Some, some, some folks are definitely salty. And this is like the, the a significant minority, but this is, uh, I definitely have received some salt about how disproportionate the amount of queer characters seems to be in Oh Human Star. Or, really? From know, who? Isn't that like the point? Yeah. I mean, um, well, I mean, point, but... yeah, I think uh, if I'm remembering the, the, the scene in question, there was a scene where they're at a, a conference, like a, a technological conference. They're giving a presentation and they are calling up a volunteer and that volunteer ends up being revealed to be a, a queer woman. And some commenter was just pointing out that like, oh, you know, what are, what are the odds that this, you know, that this volunteer would also be just a random queer person. I'm like, and I was just in my head thinking like in a conference room of like a few, couple hundred people. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Like, what was the thing I was just reading the other day? There's a CDC poll um, or a CDC finding that has put the uh, amount of high schoolers who self-identified as trans at 2%. Yeah, yeah. Which, you know, is not, it's not, means it's not typical, but it means that in the United States, if you're a high schooler, you're more likely to know a classmate who is trans than a classmate who's a redhead. Like, yeah, it's bananas or at least a natural one <laughs> yeah natural <right? laughs> uh, oh my god i mean yeah i recently saw that as well I, and also i mean I, one of the things that uh you know one of the main characters brendan pinsky does is he's so dedicated to making sure that the women of color in this robotic space are getting recognition from men who are trying to act like the women are just there as eye candy or as assistants yeah yeah that was something that i was trying to figure out how to like come make that come across because it's true i want that to be something that he gets to you know ultimately that understanding that this is something that he can do and this is something that he owes to you know a character like lucille who is his good friend and who has like really you know their their successes have propelled each other upward and a lot of you know the characters you know being who they are achieving what they have have been from Lucille's efforts and vice versa and in you know a lot of ways like that's very relevant in a story about technology but I feel like it's Mm -hmm. also relevant in you know the world of comics which you know has its own like has its own challenges and its own like difficulties for marginalized creators as well and that's something that I think is often easier for me to draw upon from personal experience, you know, witnessing that among my friends and colleagues than, you know, stories about just the world of technology, which I'm mm-hmm. not in. But yeah, in comics, there's also that issue of the fact that, you know, you can see a lot more characters of color or diverse characters in your stories, but that doesn't necessarily reflect the creators who make them. And in that case... Yeah you know, how much of them are able to draw from personal experience and reflect their own experiences in work that they're allowed to distribute. Which brings me as an opportunity to talk about, yeah, your choice to make this a comic, a web comic and self-publish mm-hmm. it and use Kickstarter. Uh, a lot of it was the right place, right time, I feel. I don't know. I think if I had 
attempted this project five years earlier, five years later, uh, the platform would have been very different in uh, different ways. Um, when I started developing and publishing the comic in 2012, um, you know, there were there were a decent amount of uh, web comics, and there were only getting to be more. Um, but in some ways, I feel like my comic stood out because there were not as many comics about like that covered a, a genderqueer or queer trans experience, but also, you know, incorporated fantastical or sci-fi elements. And now that's, that's, I would say that's not the case in the slightest, but back then I think I struggled to find comics that were similar in that way that were published online um, and that frequently updated. Um, I don't know. I just feel like I was very, very lucky that I was on the cusp of, you know, this big, giant, exciting wave of queer com uh, comics community. And now, I mean, there's so many people that it's great and everyone has really amazing, you know, takes and like genres they want to explore. And it's, it's much better. And in that respect, um, on the other hand, it is interesting to see how the internet itself has changed in the last uh, eight years, you know, uh, someone I was talking to, I can't remember who at the moment, but someone remarked that in a lot of the ways, the internet has gotten a lot more centralized. For example, you know, we will maybe visit like five social media sites instead of going to a bunch of individual websites, you know, where you might host a webcomic, but instead you might go to, mm -hmm. well, you might've gone to Tumblr, uh, or you could go to, um, what are some other ones like webtoon that sort of thing uh uh tapas but um in that respect it is both easier to find a bunch of comics all in one place but also it means that if a social media site goes belly up then a promising young artist can lose a lot of followers if they have to migrate and that's very yeah. a very precarious state to be in so you've primarily hosted stuff on your own site then, yeah? Yeah, yeah. And thankfully I have some like friends who are much more experienced with web design that has helped make my websites become much more usable over the years. But yeah, that has been able to give me control over, you know, where my stuff lives and how it's displayed. And in fact, when I uh, started using Patreon, uh, which allows people to support me, on a month-to-month -month basis instead of a project-to-project -project basis like Kickstarter. One of the um, benefits I was able to provide was to get rid of banner ads, um, which was also really great because, you know, I don't personally care for them. So being able to justify the lost income from banner ads uh, with a platform like Patreon was, was very good for me. Yeah, and you've you've really been a, a Kickstarter person as well in terms of, you know, building the support to get the book published and, and paper, yeah? Yeah, yeah, and I think that was another example of right place, right time, in that um, a lot of my good friends um, were also starting to explore Kickstarter, like, within the la uh, a few years before me, and they had racked up a lot of practical experience about what works, what doesn't, what are some good things to incorporate what are some good considerations to keep in mind just a lot of stuff that you wouldn't even think of like don't run a kickstarter in december because uh you get all this money and then you aren't able to spend it all before the new year rolls around and then suddenly you're liable for, for all this extra taxable income just stuff mm. that like you wouldn't know unless your friend who's been burned by that before gives you that advice or, you know, be prepared to spend this much extra on postage. Like, in that respect, I have a, a lot to thank for people like Spike Trotman, who's fairly transparent about her experiences using Kickstarter to build up her business, Iron Circus Comics. And lots of other people, too, like, you know, Corey Bing and Tanika Stotts and, and all of those folks. Mm -hmm. Where There's a good network of people sharing information and keeping it from being an inaccessible, like, scary platform for a newbie to use. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's been really impressive to see it. Like, have you, I think you did some live draws and stuff like that as well. 
I, I do. I offer, um, as one of my rewards for Patreon, I try to do a live stream at least once a month. Um, and I'll usually be working on, oh, Human Star, but I might work on a few other projects as well. And mm. it gives people a chance to tune in, ask me questions, uh, get a peek at the next page or so that I'm working on. And, you know, give them a chance to like ask me questions or, you know, not just about the story, but about my method that, you know, help them figure out, you know, what makes their, this comic they like, you know, tick, which, which I like. I like when, when uh, creators whose work I admire do that and make themselves accessible in that way. Hmm. Definitely building a community as well. Mm-hmm. Well, having seen your stuff at uh, conventions and things like that, you're definitely smart about making merch and things like that as well. Yeah, I mean, I I try to, like, think about, you know, there, there are lots of people who are very savvy about um, merch and especially at figuring out what sells and where. Um, the enamel pins have been a really big thing in the last few years, and mm-hmm. there are some folks, um, Hanako Lambert comes to mind as, like, the ultimate enamel pin authority when it comes to making pins, designing pins, uh, you know, figuring out what people actually want and are you know find appealing um there are people who've made that their bread and butter um in addition to their excellent comics work um for me you know it's it's judged by my own personal tastes like i'm not really interested in in prints though i'm sure people would be interested in prints from me every once in a while but i really like making mini comics and i really like being able to experiment with the form uh doing um mini comics and it's a good chance to collaborate with friends on something that's smaller scale and won't take up like a full year of our lives so you know i did a double-sided mini comic with a friend of mine kiku hughes this summer and that was a really fun little you know side side experiment i like doing that from time to time well that's really cool well you mentioned something about other projects you might have in the works i'm not sure if there's things you can tell us about yeah, well, I mean, I can talk about Meal, which is uh, my new book for the year. It came out in December, but it's essentially a new book for 2019. Um, that is a book that I uh, got uh, published with Iron Circus Comics, um, and it is co-written by my uh, good friend Soleil Ho, who is this extremely accomplished food writer, and she is the new food critic for the San Francisco Chronicle. Um, she uh helped me put together this book about a it's it's fiction and it's not science fiction but it's set in minneapolis because taking reference photos is extremely easy for me that way Hmm. um but it's about a young woman who moves to a new town uh in the hopes that she can get a job at a new restaurant that specializes in serving bug cuisine like insect cuisine um which is something that i'm very interested in and i end up learning a lot about and while we covered a lot of really fun, interesting information about what uh, insect husbandry is like and, you know, what the what grasshoppers and, and ants and tarantulas taste like, it was also a chance for us to talk about what it's like to enjoy food um, that is from like a marginalized background. Like, you know, insects are a very polarizing uh, food item for people in North America, but it's reflective of a lot of food. It's it's popular in a lot of cuisine um, mm-hmm. in Central and Latin America, uh, East and Southeast Asia, um, essentially lots of places that aren't Northern Europe, and that's for various reasons. But you know, it was a chance for Soleil to inform the narrative and talk about what it's like when a food that was considered gross or marginalized by the you know, the dominant culture of wherever you are, and suddenly it becomes trendy. Who has control of the food narrative at that point? And how do you, how can you have a say in how it's consumed? Like that ended up being really, really interesting to talk about in a, in a comic like Meal. I love that. And it, it is a huge part of public conversation now around food as well as like different foods become popularized that people had been, you know, growing up being shamed for eating and things like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And Soleil had some really great, you know, before she worked with me on Neil, she had a chance with a lot of um, places that she was writing for to cover that, uh, that process with things like pho or things like um, poke 
Um, lots mm -hmm. of, you know, from her experience, she was interested in a lot of foods that had its origins in like Asia and the Pacific islands. But, um, yeah, that, that does happen. And there's a difference between, you know, appreciating a food and being able to consume it in a way that allows, you know, folks from that background to be the ones making it and profiting from it and, you know, drive the innovations and, you know, there's a difference between that and just appropriating it for, you know, your own gain just because you think you can. And, you know, as someone who has been really interested in eating bugs and I love eating like any new kind of product that has cricket powder in it, you know, people will tell me about new stuff all the time. <laughs> but I think bugs are going to be the front line in that conversation as it gets more footholds in, you know, the trendy food business. Yeah, that's something that I've recently come to my attention as well, that people really want folks to use it as a source of environmentally sound protein and things like that. Yeah, that's a, that's a narrative that we saw pop up over and over again as uh, both of us were talking to people. Like, depending on who you talk to, a lot of folks have absorbed this narrative about the fact that it's uh, environmentally sound, which it is in some ways, and it's, you know, something that has... Uh, a lot more sustainability than say, you know, beef or pork might. Um, and I think those are definitely things to keep in mind, but it's really interesting how that has become the primary narrative for a lot of these uninitiated people, you know, people who are like learning about it for the first time and this is the way they learn about it. And, you know, it's, it's interesting because I feel like that affects the kind of food that you can get. If it's all, you know, powders and protein bars, then you won't have a whole lot of uh, opportunities to learn about, um, you know, ant tostadas or, you know, deep fried tarantulas or these things that, that do exist and just, you know, people have been squirreling away or keeping from North America. Mm hmm. Well, that's really exciting. I'm looking forward to checking that out as well. Yeah. Um, in terms of the continuation of a human star, so you're going to continue to be doing regular updates to your website and then having it come out in books through Kickstarter or how is that yeah. going to run? Yeah, that's the plan. The plan is to maintain regular updates um, and then have the remainder of uncollected work in a third and final volume. Um, I anticipate that will probably happen by the end of 2020, uh, just based on how much comic I think I have left in me. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, the, the end is in sight. It's very strange um, getting to draw and, and finalize these pages that have existed in some form or another for nearly eight years. It's very weird. Well, I, you know, I'm really glad the comic exists in both formats because I know for a lot of, you know, especially folks with like limited income, being able to read stuff online is the only way they're able to see comics. But then I bought your uh, first trade at FlameCon and I had it lying on my... Um, living room table kind of strategically uh and my mom was visiting and staying with me and you know i'm a, I've been a big comics fan since i was i don't know like 12 year, or, or years old or so and i've always been trying to get my parents to read comics and they were always really resistant and my dad would sometimes give stuff a try and then tell me why he didn't like it my mom would never even try stuff mm -hmm. i had left a human star out on the table and uh my mom wakes up much earlier in the morning than I do. And um, I woke up and my mom was like, oh, hey, I read that graphic novel you had lying out. And I want to say that your graphic novel is the first graphic novel that my mom read other than Mouse. Oh, which my gosh. We're contractually obligated to read as Jewish people. And <laughs> um, and she was like, this is such an interesting story. I haven't seen something like this before. And I was like fist pumping to myself, like in my head, like, yes. That's, so, that's um, really flattering. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, you know, it was, it was, it was really, it was, it was really great. Cause I feel like, you know, it's a very approachable style for people who don't really come from comics. It's really clear how to read it, you know, and, and it's, it's, it's something different. It's not what everybody else has tried to hand them when talking about comics. That, that means a lot. Cause you know, I, I wonder what makes my comic feel so accessible because I feel like in a lot of ways, you know, I, I want to do what I want to do for this comic. I want to tell an unapologetically queer story and I want to, you know, be really geeky and wonky about transhumanist concepts. And, you know, I don't know. I feel like it's, it's very quiet and subtle and people have described it melancholic. Like it's not the most like 
fun chipper story ever. So that's, you know, that, that means a lot that that really, you know, resonated with your mom. Well, it was funny to me though, is because at one point she was, she was saying like, you know, I didn't know that that relationship between the two, between the two uh, engineers was coming. And I'm sort of like, I realized that, you know, I, I knew about the comic through queer comics and that didn't necessarily mean that that relationship would be that way because Sula herself is trans and that's a significant part of the story as well. Mm -hmm. I don't really feel like I had an angle or a sense of like, well, what did I know going into it? You know, I, I certainly wasn't surprised, but I don't know if it was because of the context in which I was introduced to it or not or mm-hmm. something about my genre familiarity. But I was, like, also glad to have, like, successfully made my mom read another story about queer people. You know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> so. No, that's that's really cool. And I, I guess I didn't think about it that way either. The only time, you know, I think someone might have come across my work not necessarily knowing what it is. Because, you know, when they come at it at a show, I usually will say up front, you know, oh, this is a queer book because that's how it gets in the hands of people who, you know generally are the ones who want it the most Mm -hmm. but i mean all i can really think about is in the you know early days of the comic when i was posting it like those first few chapters and people didn't necessarily know that's what was coming although you know there were definitely commenters who were like oh man these these two have like a have a tension going on you know i wonder if anything happens like but with that air of like yeah it probably didn't happen because that never happens in in stories you know Mm. And I think that sheer delight at realizing, like, oh, this is one of those stories uh, mm-hmm. was really delightful. But, yeah, it's, yeah. I, I wonder how that, you know, happens for folks who don't go out explicitly looking for queer work. Yeah, exactly. And like I said, I mean, she certainly has no problems reading queer stories, but it also wasn't, like, necessarily going to be the reason why she would pick something up is sure. sort of how I put it. But um. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, but also sort of, again, yeah, always an interesting question. Like you have this really diverse cast that you've built with like multiple uh, non, multiple non-cis characters, both human and otherwise. And, um, you know, a lot of different queer characters and a lot of people from different nationalities and different kinds of bodies. And one of the things I really love about your art is that nobody has the same face. There's so much of a problem with same-facedness, both in comics that are kind of in big two house style so to speak but also mm-hmm. in a lot of web comics there's a lot of work where everybody kind of looks the same and i think it's really important that your characters don't and they have so much more character for it you know yeah well and that's something that i personally find very satisfying when i'm developing characters is trying to figure out what makes them distinct or what you know gives them like a kind of, you know, beauty or, or memorableness, you know, that's, that's a really fun thing for me to do. I love, I love character design. In fact, I'm teaching a class at char- of character design at the Minneapolis College of Art and Design right now. So oh, I, wow. I can literally like lay on these students how, how enjoyable it can be to, you know, come up with lots of interesting faces and, and looks and designs. But mm-hmm. Yeah, that that I'm I'm glad that that comes across because that's generally something I really enjoy doing. Yeah, it's 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 really appreciated, and and you have characters from all these different ethnic backgrounds, and you don't have just like it's been very it's very clearly thought out how that yeah. works for them. Well, in that respect, um, having a it's set in a very specific place. I, I assume you're referring to like Oh Human Star, right? And yeah, sorry, yes. set in, oh, no, that's Star, okay. Yeah. Yeah, having it set in Minneapolis, you know, there are, like, you know, very distinct, like, minority populations that Minneapolis is known for, you know, mm-hmm. hosting. Like, a good example is, for various historical reasons, there's a big uh, population of Hmong Americans, uh, like, following the, Vietnam, uh, the, the, the Vietnam War. And mm-hmm. then there's also a big uh, East African population, specifically Somali and Ethiopian mm-hmm. Um at like from the 90s onward i mean our you know my my uh representative is ilhan omar like she's Yay. my representative in congress and uh barkat abdi the guy who got nominated for uh, his role in captain phillips like grew up two neighborhoods over from me or like he lived there so it's you know it's something that like if you live here you know it would be very weird if there weren't any like you know women in hijab or like you know, East African families just like going about their day in like a place set in Minneapolis. Like it just wouldn't, 
it wouldn't feel authentic because mm-hmm. that's not what Minneapolis is. And yet so, there's lots of mainstream comics that take place in New York City without any queer people or any Jews. It's like, yeah, where, where are they? Yeah, it's, yeah, it's just sort of like it, you know, it, you have to be aware of sort of where you're actually setting a place and what that, you know, it, it, things become much more real when you like are able to, if you are familiar with a place and you see it reflected in a movie or a, a book or a comic and have it reflect like, oh, that is like, that does remind me of, you know, when I used to live here, that is indicative of my lived experience or you know for people who don't uh aren't familiar with the place it you know i feel like it's selling a place short if you don't think about the people who occupy it because a place is its people mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah and also just to shout out i absolutely noticed and appreciated how the robot prototypes are named after different hebrew letters <laughs> thank you i um I'm trying to remember the original reasoning behind it. If there was anything beyond, well, Brendan is Jewish and, you know, uh, or culturally Jewish. Yeah. And I, I don't know. I think I remember like when I was a kid, I was reading a book or I think maybe playing a video game and the way that things were classified instead of by like alpha or beta or gamma or ABCD or anything was uh, Aleph, Beth and Gimel. Mm-hmm. And not being Jewish myself, I wasn't as familiar with it, but it stuck with me. And I really liked the the letter Gimel. Like, it's a very pleasing word and a pleasing sound. So I think it just kind of stuck with me. And I was like, oh, yeah, that could work for this for various well, it reasons. Felt, yeah, it felt very believable that he would do that. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Well, these are just wonderful characters, and I've just enjoyed them so much. I mean, uh, you know, the supporting cast, the, the, main, the main family, and sort of the the complexity of is it oh my god you know i have to say we haven't had any spoilers at all and yet i feel like we've had a super rich conversation around the comic <laughs> so hopefully this can be a good gateway for folks who aren't even reading it yet but um but you know like the the whole family in terms of you know like who who is my dad and who is me and mm-hmm. um in their relationship with each other um and i i've just really really fallen for this comic i don't want to thank you for making it I, I really appreciate that. Thank you for, you know, being so invested in my work and for reading it and for sharing it with people who like it in, in turn, you know, that, you know, I, I, I feel like it's, you know, my, my work on this project and getting people familiar with this project has snowballed in a really satisfying way. Like I've been able to see that readership grow and I've been able to see people, you know, create, uh, you know, fan works that are, you know, inspired by their passion for it. And it just, it oh, wow. makes me really happy. Yeah. There's, you know, if I don't know how familiar you are, you are with the fan fiction site archive of our own, but you can like look up things, but based on the property that they're inspired by and Oh, human star mm-hmm. has three fanfics and it's extremely flattering and they're all oh, well wow. written. I'm just like, wow, <laughs> this took like, people really had to have liked my work to have spent this much time writing something this sincere. Sure. That, yeah. That's huge. I mean, I, I feel like I've seen some fan art on Tumblr and stuff. Yes. Yeah. People will, will make art or send me art and I try and save as much as I can. I try and save everyone that I, that I find. And you have this sort of community on the web comic as well, because people leave comments and stuff and discuss it. Like how does yeah. that feel sort of hosting that, that conversation on your own site? Well, the most interesting thing is that there's some folks who've been there for years and, you know, things happen in their life or they'll, you know, reveal personal details about themselves or their identity or their family because, you know, they'll say like, oh, you know, I've had a fight like this with my spouse and it's it's really hard and, you know, I understand where both of them are coming from or, you know, someone will say, oh, like this happened to my best friend in high school and it's heartbreaking and I wish I could have done more for them like you know Titus was doing for Sulla here and it just like may- makes me really like I-, I feel like I'm watching these you know like these communities build or just like have people feel comfortable enough sharing things in their own experience that reflects what they see in the comic that's really cool Whew, yeah for real and yeah I can imagine like having seeing other you know, people making work that's created by your own is just such a huge mm-hmm. validation. I, um, 
of its importance to people. <laughs> well, I want to thank you for joining us. Where, where's the best places for our listeners to uh, follow the comic and, and see what other things you have coming out? Um, the best way to read Oh Human Star would be straight from the site, um, ohumanstar.com. If you want to get an overview of my other works and where you can find them and read them, uh, you can go to bluedeliquani.com. If you want to just follow up with me, see any fun art or sketches that I'll, that I'll put out or my you know, opinions about the 1970s murder mystery show Columbo or eating bugs... <laughs> Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at uh, Blue Deliquani, all one word. And that's D-E-L-L-I-Q-U-A-N-T-I. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you for joining me. And thanks to our listeners. You can contact me on Twitter far too much because I'm there too much at E-L-A-N-A underscore Brooklyn. And of course, graphicpolicy.com for all your comics, news, and reviews. Thank you for joining us and keep it geeky.